everybody. Hello, Filmatics. Welcome back to part three with Steve and Al Sears. We are having such a good time, and we're talking because I guess maybe we're Florida Gators, and he's also Florida Gator. He kind of like has a double personality the Florida Gator and a Seminole, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's welcome Steven back to the show. Hi, Steve. <laughs> Hello there. Sorry this thing has gone on. We're into our third, third part of this. If you stayed with us, bless you, my friends. Yeah, hey, sometimes we just have such a great we're time. Fun. Yeah, because Stephen, you've written like, oh my God, worked on as a, a author, screenwriter, and producer uh, from television, film, animation, digital media, and gameplay from our favorite films such as Riptide, The A Team, Walker Texas Rangers, Jesse Hawks, Superboy, She Spies, and from Xenia, uh, Warrior Princess, to even Sheena. <laughs> And then, so we kind of were getting ah, in. Yeah, yeah, from Xena to Sheena. Hey, do you have any Xenas coming up or, or any more of those or any, anything like that in the horizon? No, nothing with uh, with uh, Xena coming up, although we are um, scheduled to have a, another Xena convention. Um, I mean, there were so many, there were like 20 something conventions, and then they stopped for a while. And this is a reunion convention, which has been postponed because of COVID, but it should be coming up in November. And uh, a shout out to the Xena fans, the Xenites. They are the most incredible fandom. They just, they are incredibly generous uh, in charity and, and works and social uh, programs and prog progress. I mean, they just, they have completely humbled me. So I want to give a shout out to them. Many of them I know through Facebook, I know from the conventions, and I'm proud to say many of them are personal friends of mine. Oh, so wow. Shout out to fandom. Everybody out there working in the industry never underestimate the power of fandom fandom and so they're called Zenites. Zenites is the name that yeah i forgot where that genealogy was but somebody a long time ago um the name Zenites came up and that's kind of stuck so yeah Zenites yeah, they are yeah so those are Zena warrior princess fans where they can dress up as Zena the warrior and all the other characters in the tv show um that's really popular right Oh, yeah. 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 And, you know, we had such wonderful performers on the show, uh, people in front of the camera, behind the camera. Um, we made ourselves accessible to the fandom. We had um, a studio, Universal Studio, was very understanding of the fandom, which was kind of a new thing. Um, studios back then used to be very protective of their work. So fans wanted to, like, do homages or do... Uh, you know, do t-shirts and stuff like that, they were, you know, they got a lot of cease and desist, but Universal realized these fans, they love the show. Um, I think the only rule they had was you, you don't make merchandise to sell for profit because you'll be in competition, but for charitable things and for their own enjoyment, um, <laughs> you can criticize studios and certainly I can criticize studios, but I give uh, Universal MCA a big thumbs up on the way they handled the fandom at that time. So. Uh, it was encouraged. And what happened is it grew. And today, I mean, we have, we still have such a strong fandom. Um, even the official conventions, when they ended, the fans kept getting together to have their own small conventions and uh, a Zenite retreat, uh, which is very popular. That happens every year up in the mountains. It's a camping retreat. You learn Amazonian archery and 
talk about the shows and paint yourself blue and howl at the moon like Amazons. It's it's really fun. It is just a lot of fun. Wow. I mean, I feel so boring. I mean, I write my adventures. Ah, I write my adventures. Imagine how I feel. <laughs> I, I write my adventures. Oh my god. I guess because like I'm so I guess I'm a prude or a square. Like I mean, everyone's like, "What do you do for fun?" I go, "I write stories and I walk my husky." And they're like, "Oh my god." <laughs> Well, I understand that perfectly. I mean, I, people ask me, what do you do? And I say, well, I, I lie for a living. <laughs> I do. I make stuff up. You lie for a it. living. I, I do. I tell them eventually I'll figure out what I want to do with my life. Until then, I'll just keep doing this. I love that. What do you do for a living, Stephen L. Sears? I lie for a living. <laughs> I, I, I actually spoke at the annual gathering of the uh, Menson Society, uh, which is the High IQ Society. Uh, several years ago, and my entire speech was about that. My entire talk was about how my job is to lie, to create, like I said about the movies in the, in the first installment, the movies that I liked. I created worlds that didn't exist with characters that had never been born in situations that are just hard to believe. And I convince you it's 100% true. I'm a liar. I'm also a master propagandist and I'm a manipulator. That is what I do. And I'm really good at it. I do it for entertainment. So my superhero power is for good. But as this lecture was about, it's the same technique that is used for propaganda, for manipulation in politics and manipulations of entire nations. It's the same technique. I just tell stories with it. Oh my gosh, I'm powerful. I didn't realize that until now. I love that you use your superpowers. I want to be a supervillain. I think I'll work on that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like uh, I, we were talking off, like we were waiting. Um, I was telling uh, Stephen um, to the audience um, that I write children's stories and do the voiceovers for Enchanting Book Readings podcast, and it is ranked uh -huh. top one percent. So I get to do the voices because let's face it, during COVID, no one's coming to your house to help you out with your podcast, and so I had to literally learn how to do the voices. But I, like you said, like it was really fun to play the I would play the evil witch or the evil bad guy and I'd be like I'd be the good guy and the bad guy all together and it was it's fun right playing yeah it's the same thing and when you're writing it's the same thing because you hear the voices in your head the characters are alive and you become the different characters just like when you're doing the different voices you become that character so you become all of those things you know basically we get paid for things that would have us burned at the stake 200 years ago <laughs> oh my god Get burned at the stake. Um, I have a question. So you said that you hear the characters talking. Like, yeah, that I was telling you, I was sleeping. It was like about five a.m. and I had this. <laughs> this is really sad. When you when you when you haven't made it yet, like the biggest thing is like you don't have a name. You don't have a name. And so I was like, I have no name. And I was kind of like, I have no name. And like it was just, I was obsessed with like the fact that I don't have a name or no credits. And then I ended up making this really, the, the story just popped out and I heard heard it, I just heard it talking and it was like the little yellow duck with no name. And it came out so cute, so adorable, so sweet, so charming. So um, so I want to ask you, when you're walking around or whatnot, do you, you hear your characters talking and get ideas? Like, is that part of your process or do you want to share anything? Yeah. Interestingly enough, I just did another lecture uh, recently, actually for the regional Mensa group. They, they meet uh, several times a year. Uh, about this topic, which was my discussion was the comparisons of the creative mind with the minds of quantum physicists. When you think about what a quantum physicist does, they they conceptualize things that are just impossible to believe, but they're doing it to try to understand 
and nature and physics and, and science. So they, the concepts that they come up with are initially like, that's ridiculous. How do you make that believable? And they do. They go through the process. Same thing with the creative mind. And it's a response to the question that I, that I get, I'm sure you get, which is, where do you get your ideas? How does this happen? And for me, um, there are some writers who are very studied. They know the process. They know the steps. They've read it in books. They've had it taught to them, and they know how to follow those steps. Some of them are very studied. Uh, the studied writer is the person who plays chess. Every time they write one thing, they figure out how, where that goes, and then they find the consequences, and then they rewrite, etc. And then there's the intuitive, which is my category, which is this just appears. It's just suddenly in my head. Um, it's, it's difficult to work with, but the ideas that I have and the characters appear fully formed. I can't explain it. It just happens. Then I have to actually wow. translate it into a script or a screenplay so other people can, can believe it as well. <laughs> but it goes back to that whole idea. Like you said, you know, you're walking around and the thing where you had the question about what's my name, the first, um, screenplay I ever wrote, the second pilot I sold was called Harry O'Fell and the Day Hell Froze Over. And <laughs> the whole thing came out of one line with my, um, uh, with Bert Pearl, my writing partner back then, we were having a conversation and he made a comment. He said, yeah, when hell freezes over, responding to me about something. And I said, uh, yeah, when, when hell freezes over, you'll owe me. And then I thought, Wait a minute, if hell froze over, everybody would owe everybody something if they've ever used that phrase. And that started this story process in my head where I ended up writing a screenplay about a detective who is hired to work for hell because Lucifer has stolen the key to the furnace and they can't find him. They have to get him back. So they hired this guy before hell freezes over. That, that just kind of like cool. popped into my head. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was cool. I managed to sell that as a pilot series for CBS. Uh, it didn't end up being produced. I got all the rights back and it's actually one of the novels that I'm writing right now. Um, but yeah, that, it just, it was just there. I can't explain it. There was nothing quantifiable about it. Wow. So you see the whole world and everything fully are like, wow, that's amazing. It's, it's more that it's kind of, it's interesting because part of the problem with doing the lecture on this is that you have to explain it in a linear fashion and yet it doesn't happen that way with me. So it's more like I see the universe. I see the world. I hear the characters. They're all there then I have to make sense of them. And that's what the screenwriting process is. So it's combination of, of logical, mostly emotional. Um, there's just so many components that are really hard to understand until you experience them. I guess experiential is the, is the biggest word on that. So I'm insane. Uh, I'll just say it right now. I am actually insane. I just, <laughs> no, for some reason, as they say, the difference between insanity and eccentricity is money. <laughs> oh man you're such you're so like likable and so smart and you have all these <laughs> great shows and uh, uh, the jeff sturgeons is that preston surges is that related to anything with the sturgeon preston surges no okay so it's no, just, just completely different right yeah. yeah jeff sturgeon is actually an amazing artist and he had um, done it, this series of artwork um, off of the concept of a post-apocalyptic world where cities floated in the air to escape the carnage that happened on Earth, uh, centering around the Yellowstone eruption. Uh, the Yellowstone caldera is actually one of the most active volcanoes, and it's a huge 
super volcano. This is true. I'm not making this stuff up. And if it ever blows, and it has in the past, and it's still active, that's why all the geysers are there. If it ever blows, that will change the entire, well, certainly the North America, but change the entire world. So he conceptualized through his artwork that humanity tried to escape this by floating cities. And that evolved into this whole idea of how the cities would relate, um, how they would govern themselves. Uh, and just, you know, he put a call out for a bunch of authors. Um, that simplifies it. He knows a lot of great authors. And he put out a call and he said, I'd love to do a book about this. And they all responded to it. Kevin Anderson, as I mentioned earlier, he has a story in there. Um, Mike Resnick, amazing storyteller. I think this was his last story before he passed away. So, um, yeah. So that was it. So, so that's that's the uh, that's who Jeff Sturgeon is. Oh, okay, great. And then you said you really loved Aliens versus Predator, the Ultimate Prey Collection. How'd that come about? Uh, that I was contacted um, by the editors um, of the uh, who were working on that particular anthology. It's for Titan Books, Disney Publishing. I think Fox Publishing is also involved because it's two different franchise movies coming together. And I was contacted to write. Um, to submit a story, I should put it that way. With most anthologies, you submit a story before they decide whether they're going to pay for it. The idea being is if they say no to your story, you can submit it to another uh, anthology. The problem with this, obviously, it's very specific, aliens versus predators. So you know, if they had said no, it probably was a story that would have died. Uh, but fortunately, they said yes. And the story that I wrote um, is... Interestingly enough, it's historically based. Um, it is takes place in the late 1700s. And all of the references that are in the story historically, I don't want to give away too much about it. Um, everything in there is absolutely true. The only fictional thing are the aliens and the predators. So I'm also a bit of a history buff. So being able to pull all that together was was fun and challenging at the same time. So uh, and it also, you know, being from Florida, there's little connectivity to Florida and to my hometown of St. Augustine. There's little mentions in there, late 1700s, of course. Love it. So, uh, but that was fun. And yeah, that was a major release. Uh, it's out there, probably still on bookstores now, bookshelves out there. Yeah. I don't think uh, we mentioned Stalag X earlier. That one you may not be able to find on bookshelves anymore. Oh, no. So, um, but this is the one that, like, it, 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 can you tell us how, like, you got your film deal from that and uh, what's going on with that? Uh, yeah, um, that was uh, Stalag X, the graphic novel, uh, written by myself and Kevin J. Anderson, interior art by Mike Retera. Um That was something that uh, Kevin and I developed, I told in the last segment. So we got it out there with The Vault. The Vault got it published, and uh, during its initial run, it was out at uh, Barnes & Noble and Books A Million, a bunch of other outlets. So I had also been sending out the material to different connections I had in the studios to see if anyone was interested. So we got a, um, an email from the publisher saying somebody's trying to contact you about acquiring the movie rights. And we're like, okay, we'll talk to him. Let's see who it is. So it turned out to be Francis Lawrence. And Francis uh, is <laughs> one of my favorite directors, uh, just by coincidence. Francis directed three of the Hunger Games movies. Uh, he also directed I Am Legend, uh, Red Sparrow, one of my favorite movies. Um, He's just an incredible director. He concentrates on character uh, within the sci-fi realm. He, he usually works with prior material. And so he was reaching out to see if the rights were available. And we talked with him and his uh, associate, Cameron, 
and really enjoyed it. We just enjoyed talking to them, um, what their plans were and how they wanted to approach this. So he asked for a, um, a shopping deal so that he could take it around to the studios and see if he could get some interest in it. So we, we agreed to that. And then COVID hit and um, most of the studios shut down and as far as actually looking for new material. So it had to wait. Then as COVID was coming out, uh, Francis had signed a deal with uh, New Republic Pictures. Uh, they did Rocket Man, um, Dung, uh, 1917. Uh, so they're a great company. And um, he's told them, this is what I want to do. I want to do this as part of my, uh, my lineup. And so we just finished negotiating the deal with New Republic Pictures uh, for a feature film, possibly a TV series, but right now focusing on a feature film uh, based on the original graphic, uh, graphic novel. So we're very excited about that. Uh, that just came out in the trades, I think, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, um, about that arrangement and how we set it up. So, and the funny thing is, afterwards, I was, <laughs> I was trying to figure out how he got the book, you know, because I, I was like patting myself on the back and saying, yeah, I sent it out there and I got it to the studios and somehow I got to him. Oh, I'm so proud. I did my work. <laughs> so I asked his, uh, asked his associate, Cameron, how they how they came by the book, you know, was it through Paramount? You know, how did they get it? Was it executive over at Fox? And he said, I think we picked it up at Barnes and Noble. Oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> Which by the way, is the best way for this to happen because then it's not, somebody didn't push it on him. They found it and they liked it. That's the best way for it to happen. Wow. That's amazing. So it's like, if our audience is listening, go, well, where can I get the novel? Stag, Stag it's, it's called Stag Lab X. Stalag? Stalag. Stalag X. Stalag was what the Stalag. Uh, uh, yeah the references to the uh, the concentration camps during World War II that the uh, Nazis had set up. So it's called Stalag X, and I believe you can still find it on Amazon. Uh, hopefully, well, I haven't checked in a while. That would be something for the Vault. The, the Vault Publishing is the is the company that handles it. And, and do looking you... right now in there. Yeah. And, and do you like, um, because you, it's, it's co-created by you and with New York Times bestselling author, Kevin J. Anderson. Um, do you like mm -hmm. um, writing with a partner? Um, good question. Uh, very good question. Uh, and by the way, I just looked on Amazon. It's still available. Great. Um, yes and no. It really <laughs> has to be the right person. Um, I mentioned uh, when I first started out, I had a writing partner, Bert Pearl. Bert and I worked very well together. We were, we were best friends. So, you know, we, we liked each other. We enjoyed each other. And we would always kind of go back and forth on how we would write things. And we're just having a, you know, a nice, giddy, fun time with it. What you find out later on is that working with some writers, um, Keep in mind, creativity is involved. We all have different ways to do that. Egos are involved. Pride is involved. The business is involved. It's not that easy. So I can point to, you know, with my career, 38 plus years and working with, a, I don't know how many different creative people, um, I could probably point to maybe five people that I could, without any qualification, say, absolutely, I could co-write with them without a problem. Not a problem. After that, you end up with a level where you basically have to negotiate things. Hopefully, both of you um, are all keeping an eye on the project. You're not doing it because you want to win an argument. You want the project to be better. 
Uh, that's always been my attitude. My name's on it, going to be on it one way or the other. So if you have a great idea and it's better than my idea, absolutely, let's go with it because it's going to make me look good. Yeah, I, I, so I agree it, with that. It does get. Yeah, there are some people like I have tried to work with and it didn't work out. But in general, um, even with that, even with that, that's that's in the minority. Maybe like three people that uh, that we've remained friends. But it was kind of like, yeah, this isn't going to work. So let's not do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, and you're saying TV is a very collaborative process because there's a writer's room. Usually how many people are usually on your uh, in your writer's room? Because you've obviously been in the business a very long time. Like what's the average or is there anything you tell us about the writer's room or? Is there's nothing average about it. It depends on the show. You could have a writer's room where, you know, if the show is only dealing the majority with freelance writers, then you have people who come and go for each meeting, but they're not a stable part of the staff. But I've been on shows where the staff numbered like eight or nine people. And then I've been on other shows where you only had three people and you had to break the stories yourself. It, it really varies. Okay. And writer's rooms are extremely, you know, when they're done well, I refer to them as like a creative bouncy room, uh, like those castles, those inflatable castles you see at kids, kids parties. Yeah. The kids all jump in and they bounce around, they bounce around, they have a great time. It's kind of like that. And the first time I ever saw it in action was back in Riptide when Bert and I first started out. And when we ended up on staff, listening to these incredibly creative producers uh, Stephen Cannell, uh, Bab Skrihowski, Frank Lupo, Tom Blumquist, uh, Patrick Habsburg, um, Larry Herzog, all of these incredibly seasoned, experienced producers, hearing them in a story room, we struggled to keep up at first because they speak a shorthand, something that I now can do. Everybody understands what you're saying. Um, but back then, it was just like the most amazing high-energy process. So it's... Um, it, it is fun and it's exhausting at the same time. Wow. And then uh, what is your favorite? Do you like producing more or being the creator or is there a difference? Like how you. I like cashing the checks. No, um, <laughs> well, I do like that. But, uh, you know, it's yeah, that's a good question. I Well, first of all, uh, writing will always be right there because um, that's the storytelling. That's the core of storytelling. I will always that will always be number one. Even though, as I said, I'm not really good at listing favorites. That absolutely, that's the core of who I am. I do enjoy producing a television show. And it is the most exhausting, frustrating, wearying, angry thing you could possibly consider. And yet it's by far the most rewarding thing. Wow. Because you're putting it together. There's so many different elements. And when I'm running a show, I want everybody to have that type of feeling. So I'll everybody in the production i want them to see their fingerprints in the final product so you know i've always tried to keep an open door policy for everybody including right down to the to the set level um with the people who are actually moving things around and making everything work so uh i i do enjoy it but while i'm doing it man is it tear at you it's just so involved in so much work but I love seeing the results of it, even though I rarely go back and watch my old episodes. I'm just too critical to do that. Yeah. And then um, it, and what? how do you feel about the film? Like, um, it, it, it seems like a lot of films are coming from graphic novels or comic books these days. Do you see like that's going to continue or? 
Um, it, it, it will. We go through cycles. We always go through cycles. Um, Marvel has done an incredible job of creating their universe. Duh, we know that. Uh, what they have really um, capitalized on, brilliantly capitalized on, is our childhood. Because Marvel and DC Comics, superhero, things like that, they're a part of the childhood that has continued through. And one thing about comics, whether you're boomers or millennials or Gen Xers, you have a memory of those comics somehow. And a lot of this business now, because there's so much invo money involved, is about branding. And by branding, it means instant recognition. Somebody sees it, and even if they don't know anything about the movie, if they see Spider-Man, I'm going to go and see that because I recognize it as opposed to Webmaster, which might be a Spider-Man version, but you're not going to see that. Webmaster, who knows anything about that? Sounds like somebody working their own web page. So a lot of it is just the branding of it that is familiar to people. That's why we see a lot of those particular shows, and especially superhero shows. And when they're done well, um, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I sometimes, I, I, I hate to admit, I love the Marvel Universe. I was a DC Comics guy when I was a kid, but I love the Marvel Universe because they've integrated it so well. And my biggest fear is that I'm going to die before I see the resolution of the Thor stories. <laughs> the Thor stories, oh my gosh, yeah, the resolutions. Let's get, or, or the Avengers and... Yeah, I, and speaking of, Any I, of those. yeah, I I love like the Avengers and TV shows like that. Do you think those are ever going to be reprised or like we're just so advanced now with like special effects and it's just you know action and just how it's you know is there any differences? Do you think or like you said everything comes around? Um, it it does. I think everything that is good goes back to character. Um, one thing that you know our our special effects have become so incredibly sophisticated and they will continue to do that. You know, I, I point out to people that a lot of the stunts that we did on the Cannell shows, A-Team and Riptide and Hardcastle, McCormick, those kind of shows, we did them. We didn't have computers to generate that. If you saw a helicopter flying low to a semi truck and, a, and somebody jumping out of the truck on top of the, the um, semi, none of that was green screen. We did it. We oh actually God. did it. So these days, everything is so sophisticated, uh, even a lot of the backgrounds are shot completely, either in, on green screen or with gigantic 6K um, screens. Um, we get a little bit anesthetized to the special effects. And what happens then is that, what do you have left? Special effects or story or character? Well, story and character is really what attract us over the long period. You might go... You know, if you remember one of the best special effects movies you've ever seen with gigantic robots and whatever characters like that, 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 that. Um, let's say that you saw it 10 years ago. Well, go watch it now. The technology is going to look incredibly dated to you. However, that little rom-com or driving Miss Daisy or something like that, which was all character based, that survives the test of time because it's not effects, it's character. And that's what we identify with. Yeah, that's why I like a big fan of Criterion films. Speaking of, what is one of your favorite Criterion yeah. movies? Do you have any favorites? Or oh, a couple ones you want to chat real quick? Yeah, we, I know. Few <laughs> we have <laughs> a few minutes that, left. So uh, it's funny, the Criterion Correct Collection. I remember when I got my first laser displayer, that was really big. Criterion Collection. Uh, there's a few movies that stand out to me, and I, I, you know, I can't define really 
why, well, I, I can in some cases, but um, I can't say whether other people would resonate with them. Um, there was a movie called The Ninth Configuration, um, which was, I liked when I saw it. It's an older, older movie about a um, uh, an army doctor who has to um, oversee a psychiatric um, facility of, uh, of soldiers who have, have kind of gone a little crazy. Uh, and again, if, if you watch the movie, you'll see it's all psychology. It's all about the mental condition and about that particular character, which is probably why I like it. There's a movie um, called Cross Creek, another older movie, which is the story of um, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, who wrote The, um, the Yearling, was one of her most popular books. Uh, she, was, she was living in Cross Creek, Florida. And it's just her story of this woman who lived in New York, got a divorce, and decided to move to central Florida to try to, to write, to basically get everything out of her head so she could write. And she kept sending stories to the, the publisher, the stories she would make up, and the publisher kept rejecting the stories. But what she experienced there became the source of her greatest success. And the, the cast is just amazing. Um, Mary Steenburgen, Malcolm McDowell, Alfred Woodard, Rip Torn, um, uh, Dana Plato, just an amazing cast. And it's this little small movie most people haven't heard about. Uh, as you might have noticed, those two movies are not sci-fi heavy technology movies. They're, again, character-based movies. Well, Stephen, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And everyone check out his book and stay tuned for his amazing movie that's going to be coming out, Staglag X. And check out his amazing book, uh, The Non-User-Friendly Guide for Aspiring TV Writers. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you. We had so much fun. I want to thank our lovely viewers for making us hit number one and Countries Weekly. And if you take a second to download the podcast, subscribe. And if you'd like to support the podcast, buy me coffee sneakies. Thank you so much. Until next week, stay safe and be healthy.